protege Voy a sufrir, sufriré tú, te odiaré Y vendicar cosas está a Welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And it's a new month. Woo, we're talking um, about Nicholas Ray's 1958 film Party Girl. Didn't we already talk about that? Did we? You might have dreamed that. That's. I watched it four times earlier today to prepare for this podcast. I swear, didn't you bring it up in an, in an earlier podcast? Oh, did I? And I got it confused with Chow Manhattan. What am I thinking of? Maybe. Maybe I don't I'm know. getting it confused with another movie. I Yeah, I remember you bringing up Chow Manhattan. I brought it up because you had mentioned a movie. I don't know. Maybe it was Party Girl. I just watched Party Girl for the first time yesterday. That's why I randomly said it. But We're um, not actually talking about that. No, we are not. We're, We're starting our about, new theme. Yeah. Which we talked about last time, but in case you didn't watch that, it's Holly Jollo Christmas. So, you know, we're going with the Christmas theme. It's December after all. Um, hope Thanksgiving was good. I realized as I was editing last week's podcast that we didn't wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And I felt really bad. <laughs> so, happy belated Thanksgiving. And happy Hanukkah. Which, the, yeah, uh, happy yeah, Hanukkah. First day of Hanukkah is on uh, Thanksgiving. I think for the first time ever. And uh, at least the, it'll be the last time for like a thousand years or something like that. Is that true? Someone said that somewhere. Maybe not a thousand. A few hundred years. I think it's the... Well, Thanksgiving's only been around for a couple hundred years. Um, so, yeah. But Thanksgiving... I think Thanksgiving hasn't been like celebrated as a holiday. Even over a hundred years. So that makes it even more likely that this is the first time it's ever happened. I don't know that for a fact, but I feel like, you know, they probably weren't celebrating it in like the 1700s. No, probably not. Probably. Maybe it started like somewhere in the, in the 1800s. But anyway, Thanksgiving was yeah. last week. <laughs> We're talking about cares? Christmas. God damn it. <laughs> So Holly Jollo Christmas. Um, so yeah, in case you don't know what that Jollo is all about, why don't you uh, give a little refresher? I'd like to hear Max define it. Okay. In the 1920s, there was this <laughs> magazine, uh, and you never finished that story, so I don't actually know what what it is. Nobody but, wants to hear about that. <laughs> but okay, so Jollo is a uh, is an Italian word for uh, for the color yellow. And I don't really know what that has to do with the genre, but the genre of a giallo film is an Italian murder mystery. Um, sometimes it gets lumped into the horror genre. People kind of consider it to be like a subgenre. Um, a lot of famous uh, Italian filmmakers and horror films have kind of come out of that. Um, Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, Mario Bava 
who we will be talking about today. Um, yeah, so it was uh, it started in the '60s and kind of uh, evolved through the '70s and into the '80s and kind of morphed into the American sort of slasher film. So, how'd I do, Tim? I I agree with all that. Have anything to add? Um, the reason that uh, the color yellow uh, was attached to that genre is, um, well, in the twenties uh, there was there was a publishing company called uh, Mondadori. I mean, there there still is, but in the twenties, this is when they did this. Um, they released uh, different uh, publications um, with like uh, different colored covers to match the genre. Like I think blue was for romance. Yellow was mystery, and so on. You'd think red would be romance. I'm not sure what red was. I'm not sure what the other colors were. But I'm pretty sure blue was romance. But anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> yellow was mystery. Yeah, and it was, um... You know, they they would print uh, stories by, like, um, Agatha Christie, and, um... Wow, I'm blanking on any other mystery editor. Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I almost said Herman Cain, but not Herman Cain. <laughs> Who's the James L. Cain? Right? Is he the one he did? Postman always rings twice. I think. I I don't know. I think uh, James M. Cain, not Herman Cain. Anyway. Um, but yeah, and um, Edgar Wallace, who um, had a big. Uh, the stories of Edgar Wallace uh, were. Uh, or several of them were adapted for the screen um, in Germany, and the films there were called uh, Creamies. Uh, K R I M I. Hey, I'm going Creamy. to check out the new Creamy. Yeah, um, and <laughs> and it's like um, the in Germany, it's like the 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 Carl May westerns and the Edgar Wallace uh, Creamies kind of evolved. Um, like when when they got to Italy, they became uh, the Italian Giallo film and the Spaghetti Western, so mm. like the the German films of like uh, the early '60s had a big influence on the Italian films of later. Although I I haven't seen a single German Western from the '60s, um, so I don't really. Yeah, I have not that, either. So. That would be interesting to see yeah. what um, they focus a lot on, like. um, on Native American characters. Oddly enough, hmm. yeah. <laughs> Something that the, uh, the spaghetti westerns never really touched on. Yeah, I mean, well, in the like the late sixties, like when they got really like political, they would bring stuff up like that. Um, but uh, yeah, and the only creamy that I love saying that <laughs> creamy, the only creamy I've seen is um, well, the German title. Well, I, I I can't. I don't. I don't know how to pronounce the German title, but uh, the translation of the German title was "Creature with the Blue Hand." And uh, I saw the VHS version of it, The Bloody Dead, um, which has, um, like, footage in it that was shot, clearly shot on video in, like, the 80s and Mm. edited into the movie randomly (laughs) to make it a little more gory. Um, But I can definitely, like, from the parts that were clearly actually from the 60s, you can see the influence that it had on uh, the Jalo. Cool. Well, so the movie we're starting with um, is, fittingly enough, what some consider to be the start of the the movement, of the genre. 
in the 60s. Um, Mara Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, 1963. Or 62. IMDb says 63. My DVD copy says 63, but like several like books and magazines that reference it say 62. So I, I don't know what that's about. Um, so, yeah, but we'll say 63. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Rumorg just had a big 50th anniversary of gore um, issue in October, and they ta- they mentioned this movie as, along with, like, Blood Feast and um, At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul as, like, groundbreaking... Uh, go- Although it wasn't gory at all, this movie. But, no, um, no, not, not at all. Yeah, but it kind of got lumped in with, like, oh, early 60s horror movies that... Yeah. The gore fest that is the girl who knew too much. <laughs> Watch as this knife is slipped slowly out of her back. There is the bullet wound. Yeah, That's, uh, but I mean, <clears throat> but anyway, I should yeah. say um, before we get started talking about it, if uh, if you haven't seen the movie and are just listening just to you know hear about it and whatever, um, and you happen to have Netflix, the movie is on Netflix, so um, you know you can you can go watch it easily enough. Um, Let's pause it. We'll be waiting right here. Yeah, I have, I have a feeling that some of these films um, that we're talking about in this month might be a little harder to track down. Um, I know at least one of the movies we have lined up, we only have on VHS. The best of my knowledge, it's never been available in North America on DVD. Um, so, but, so you know, this is a, at least a good opportunity. You know, it's it's there, so... If you want to go watch it, I would I I would highly recommend it because um, I I just finished watching it and uh, it's a great great film, um, very entertaining and very uh, very cool. So yeah, the strong anti drug message. Yeah, <laughs> the surprise <laughs> twist ending, <laughs> the Shyamalan twist is that everything you've been watching is uh, you know paid for by the committee to <laughs> you know whatever the anti-drug committee even though john saxon's character did not take a puff and yet still somehow her hallucination <laughs> influenced him I, I don't know it was a weird it's kind of a weird ending um it was humorous though the ending yeah i, I like how it has like yeah. a, a a funny so ending. maybe i was just stoned the whole time and nobody <laughs> got murdered yeah that's <laughs> Is pretty great, um, and marijuana of all things that would induce that kind of vivid hallucination, you know. Yeah. Well, the early '60s and Bava wasn't really necessarily like with it. I don't know, or hip. Yeah, I mean that was kind of like at the beginning of when public awareness about drugs like marijuana was kind yeah. of becoming more. I don't know, commonplace. And it wasn't just something in, like, the jazz clubs. And, right. Yeah. But and, anyway, we're talking about the very last scene of the movie. Maybe we are. <laughs> at the, somewhere towards the beginning. Um, so right off the bat, the title, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, obviously brings to mind, um, if you're familiar with, uh, with other thriller films or Hitchcock films, um, you might recognize the title, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, so this is obviously a play on that. What's the what's the uh, Italian title, Tim? La ragazza che sapeva troppo. Beautiful. Just rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. 
the the original U.S. title was the Evil Eye, which. Uh, what would you think that title came from within this film? Because I'm not sure. Maybe oh, it's the character Laura at the end. She kind of has a crazy look in her eye. The U.S. version is a few minutes longer. Really? Then I'm assuming... Now, on Netflix, was it um, Italian language and English subtitles? Italian language okay. and English subtitles. That's the only one I can find, too. I'd love to hear it dubbed in English. Yeah, because and well, the, yeah. The the thing is, is like, I'm watching it, and like John Saxon is an American yeah. actor, and um, the the girl, what's her? I can't remember the character's name, the main character. The main character of the movie we just watched. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, fuck. <laughs> but she's supposed to be an American tourist, and. Uh, I was I was trying to see like as I'm reading the uh, the subtitles I'd kind of quickly shoot my eyes up to see if I could see the uh, the lips moving to the words that were actually you know to the English speaking words and it, I mean I can tell that John Saxon was speaking English. Um, do you know the character's name now? Nora Dralston. Nora, that's right, Nora. Nora, Nora, and. Nora's the good one, and Laura's the evil one. Ah. Huh. Well, although they would, they would say Laura, so I guess... Laura. Laura. Anyway. Um, um. But yeah, there is, like, I mean, I'm mostly anti-dubbing, you know, when it comes to, like, foreign films. You know, you want the subtitles, but so you can get, like, the actual thing. But there is no... With Italian films, for the most no part, there's no original version. soundtrack. Yeah, because... Th- Oftentimes, they didn't record audio on set. Yeah, and you'd get... There were so many um, co-productions in Europe where you'd get, like, three actors in a scene all speaking different languages. Mm -hmm. And they'd all be, like, speaking to each other and responding in their own languages and And stuff. And none of them would even understand the language that's being spoken to them. Um, So I can't imagine, like, trying to, like, get a performance out of somebody who if you're playing off someone who's speaking a totally different language that you can't understand, it's gotta be challenging. But, um, yeah, so that's why like, not just this film, but like most all Italian movies are just completely dubbed. And, um, up until I think, um, the late eighties, early nineties, it be- it began to be like a more like common practice to record actually there. <laughs> the rest of the world is like, Hey, uh, you know, there are things called microphones. <laughs> And um, you don't have to wait until you finish shooting the movie to use them. Although you can actually get, bring them out with you. There's so much more control that way, though, if you can just add in all the sound afterwards and just, like... But, I mean, you can still do that if you wanted to. Yeah. Like, you'd have that option. Like, if you, like, recorded everything on set and then, like, brought it back and you're like, you know what, like, let's just kind of, like, scratch it all and redo it. It'd be the same exact thing, except, like, you just hire one guy to hold a microphone. But you don't even have to write the dialogue until after you shoot it. Also, some, that helps, too. That, it Which, probably uh, happened. Fellini uh, didn't even do that sometimes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, ah, we'll make it up. And you got to pay for all the recording equipment. Uh. <laughs> Such a hassle. But, I mean, that's kind of one of the things I like about watching um, older Italian films. Mm. It, they have this kind of, like, almost crude quality to them. Yeah. It feels like they were made very, very cheap, very, very fast, and just kind of like 
the filmmakers are kind of left to do basically whatever they wanted to. Um, I don't know if that was necessarily the case, but that's what it feels like. Because they're just trying so many different things and experimenting, like, with all kinds of stuff that, you know, in the Hollywood studio structure, you know, they never get away with half the stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they have this, like, very, I don't know, hyper-creative kind of quality to them. And a very, like, they have, like, a realness because they're kind of just, like doing everything as you know i don't know just like they're not like they'll have special effects in them but they're yeah. not like overly produced or overly kind of like thought out they're kind of just like you know let's just do it and see how it goes and um i don't know it, often it feels really really nice it's like a like arts and crafts special effects sort of thing like I don't know. Do you not agree with that? I don't know. I mean, like arts and crafts, but I, I whenever not like I think, shoddy, but just like, <laughs> like oh, that's really creative. We'll way make of doing the blood that. with like, construction paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like Mario Bava, like started out doing like, well, he was a cinemat- cinematographer for decades, um, and then he would do like special effects and stuff. And uh, several of his films, there's like whole scenes where you'll like look at the screen and it's like, oh, the there's the characters moving around at the bottom. The other 90% of the screen is a painting he did, like a map painting. Like he would do that a lot when it wasn't even necessary. He would Not so much in this film. This film mm. is clearly like on location. It's, yeah. like, it's like a tourist movie in parts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like uh, in like Danger Diabolic and um, things like that, like, you know, he would just do these like big elaborate like paintings for sets and stuff and you could oh you could well not oh you could usually tell it's a painting but you would like marvel at the artistry of the painting yeah and that's kind of like what i like i don't know like the, the crudeness of it doesn't really matter like yeah. you know and they'll often have just like cuts that like with continuity errors and like jump weird jump cuts and things that just like don't really you know you know that it's like a movie while you're watching it like and you can see how a lot of things are done yeah. Um, but it doesn't take away from the uh, the artistry of it. It's interesting. But um, yeah, this movie. Um, I actually I think I liked it more than any other Mario Bava film that I've seen. What else have you seen? Oh, I <laughs> I was gonna look on IMDb just to kind of refresh my memory because I can't exactly remember. Some of the names. Well, I, t- I already talked about um, Kill Baby Kill. Right. Um, I watched that uh, last month on Op- Halloween. Operazione Paura. Um, <laughs> I w- I'll stop doing that. I'm sorry. No. I, <laughs> it's, it's Operation fine. Fear. That's the uh, Italian title? Operation Fear? Yeah. Kill Baby Kill makes way more sense. They're both very, like, modern titles for such, like, a, a gothic film. And that's kind <laughs> of, yeah, well, that's kind of the, uh, the I've mostly seen of Marabava's stuff, like, more of his gothic films. Like, whenever I think about him, like, I imagine, like, a castle and usually, like, a period piece and stuff. And I don't know if that's necessarily, like, true for his body of work on, a, on the whole, but I feel like I've seen at least, like, three... Well, he was a popular film, or like a like a genre filmmaker. Like whatever was, I mean, the Italian 
uh, genre of cinema like went in cycles, like it does anywhere. So like in the early '60s, people were making the gothic horror films. So he did, you know, Black Sunday and Whip in the Body. Black. I've seen Black Sunday. That's yeah. that's one that I've seen. Yeah. And um, you know, and then like he did the early Jolly. He did you know Girl Who Knew Too Much and uh, Blood and Black Lace. And Kill Baby Kill, like, combined those two. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then, like, the late 60s, there were things like, um, you know, like Barbarella and things like that. So that, so then he directed Danger Diabolic. <laughs> um, and uh, he only did one spaghetti western, I think. Uh, Roy Colt and Winchester Jack, which I think was, like, 1970. And, you know, he did a sex comedy. He did, um, like, a spy comedy with uh, Vincent Price and, I think, Frankie Avalon. Uh, Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, which is horrible. <laughs> like, it's just, it's sad. Like, I, it's the only, it's the only Bava film I've seen where I've just been like, let's make this stop. <laughs> oh, no. Um, you know, and then in the early 70s, um, you know, he did like, a, well, he did a film, Lisa and the Devil, which because The Exorcist came out, was then re-released with like new footage as House of Exorcism. Um Oh, you know what's really weird? What that suddenly makes sense to me because on Netflix they have Lisa and the Devil and House of Exorcism. Yeah, and they both have the same poster. Yeah, only it's a different color. They're two very different films, and it's it's interesting the way they use like the same footage in each film. Hmm. Um, Lisa and the Devil is like a a surreal masterpiece and house of exorcism is like really fun trash. So they're both enjoyable to watch for very different reasons. That's cool. I thought it was just Netflix being lazy. Nope. It's kind of like, ah, you know, we'll just put this generic poster up for, for these things. No, that's, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I liked watching, um, this film in seeing it in a more modern setting. Yeah, because like I said, I was used to seeing like you know this castle stuff, and when I saw uh, Kill Baby Kill, I kind of had like a uh, I don't know, I didn't really care for it as much, right. and I think because like I had seen like Black Sunday, and I don't know, and and Kill Baby Kill just felt kind of repetitive to me, mm. um, and just seemed to kind of drag on. Um, but this. Uh, from beginning to end, I was, I was really hooked into it. Um, and the, the Hitchcock influence clearly doesn't end with the title of the movie. No. I mean, in a lot of cases, in a lot of scenes, like it really feels like Hitchcock could have shot it. Um, very surprising. It seems like the kind of story that he would just, you know, totally be into. I mean, it is, you know, somewhat of a play on, on the, the plot of the man who knew too much but like very just barely yeah, just up an american goes to a foreign country and becomes involved in a crime right that's like that's that's in which somebody's stabbed in the back mm-hmm. so that that's yeah, there the is the, yeah, yeah. there is the backstabbing <laughs> that's true in the middle of a, of a square a public yeah. a public you know place the spanish steps um but you know outside of that like they're really completely different stories um but yeah, I, I kind of had a fun time like thinking, comparing it to like Hitchcock films, and thinking like if Hitchcock was making this, like who would he cast as like as Nora? And I'm like, th- and it feels like the kind of thing that would be totally like a uh, Ingrid Bergman kind of role. 
Um, cause it kind of brought to mind like, um, films that she had done like suspicion and gaslight where people are telling her that like, she's making it up and you know, yeah. where she's sort of thinking that there is this, this crime going on or this murder happening. And everyone's like, Oh no, you know, it's all in your head. Um, and she's determined to kind of get to the, uh, to the bottom of it. And, and it also kind of felt like a lot of Hitchcock films like to sort of focus on one like city and kind of feature it and its landmarks in like a kind of like a fundamental way into the story. And this was kind of doing the same thing. That's, um, uh, pretty common in like as we'll see in like later Jalo films um they often feature like a protagonist who uh is like a stranger in a strange land or they're they're traveling or something and um sometimes they'll just feel like travelogues like you'll just say oh and here's like this well eyeball which we'll watch later especially it is about like people like on a tour bus going through uh Spain but um like, there's a film, uh, another, like, early 60s Jalo, uh, I think it was 64, 65, uh, The Monster of Venice, or The Embalmer, um, which is hilariously bad. It's, it's enjoyably bad. Like, I don't know. Um, it's, like, clearly, like, it was, like, funded by the, like, Venice, like, Board of Tourism or something like that, because they keep just mentioning, like, you know, they'll, they'll like, almost turn to the camera and say like oh i can't believe such horrible things are happening in a city as beautiful as this <laughs> which they kind of just... they kind of do in in this film too um when when john saxon is like you know sees the little kid with the pop gun and he's like this is the only crime that ever happens in yeah. rome and i'm thinking like yeah because the romans are just historically known as the yes. <laughs> the happy go lucky like love everyone kind of people meanwhile there were um Oh, there were like adulterous wives being murdered all the time and everybody kind of like looked away from it. There were um, homosexuals being found like drowned in parks and stuff and beaten by uh, young hoods. This was during the 60s? Yep. And before like this. Um, but like of the time that the movie was, yeah, was made. Yeah. Violent place. Uh. <laughs> so basically John Saxon's full of shit. That's what you're saying. As usual. <laughs> um, putting bars on Nancy's windows. Anyway. Yeah, he didn't believe her either. <laughs> <laughs> when will he ever learn? What did you think of young John? Sa- is that the first, like, young John? Yeah, that's Saxon the young. This is the youngest that I've seen him. Um, he's still great. I, he has, like, a... he's And he was funny in this movie. I like... He kind of had a more... Um, comedic side yeah i like the running gag of him she's constantly injuring him yeah like it starts with she like breaks his finger and then like she, he has the bruise on his face mm-hmm. and she keeps like hitting him and stuff yeah and he even is kind of like he'll like smash it uh, slam his fist down yeah. on the table and like <laughs> hurt his finger yeah it's really I, I i like how the movie was um and that felt very hitchcock to me too blending the sort of the humor and the and the macabre into mm. this like mystery that leads you along and also the um the police were pretty ineffectual she kind of had to like take the whole investigation in her own hands yeah and hitchcock in his films the police are never really well not never 
They're rarely well, portrayed. Almost always, then, just yeah. Totally Have you seen? Did you get around to seeing I Confess yet? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been too busy watching these movies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll get around. I'll get around to yeah. it. Um. But yeah, that's another thing that um, most Jolly uh, have is, um, well, I mean, obviously it's going to be a mystery. You need to have a character who's like solving a mystery. And um, usually it's not the police or a detective or something. Usually it's just like an amateur detective mm-hmm. uh, working either uh, in tandem with the police or going against the police. Um, and then like later on... Um, you'll see films that will have like a police protagonist and that's when you get a crossover into uh, yet another subgenre in Italian cinema, which is the, um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say it cause I don't remember how to say it. Police procedural, I guess is what we'd call it here. Okay. I think it's like polizio testi or something like that. Mm-hmm. There. Um, which a lot of those were released in the wake of the, uh, the French connection. Gotcha. Italian genre films are always released in the wake of right. something else. Like a- after Jaws, you've got uh, um, Tentacles and Island of the Fishmen, things like that. <laughs> they just put all their their eggs into whatever basket seems to be producing the most money. <laughs> after the Deer Hunter, there was <laughs> there was one um, about it was like suppose it was, I think it was just called. Um, I forget. The Deer Hunter was called La, La Cacciatore in um, in Italy, and then it was something like La Cacciatore. Something else was the pseudo sequel, um, in which like a Vietnam vet goes back to Vietnam to like save more people because he couldn't save his friend the last time. And it's, it's, but you're supposed to just like watch the movie and just imagine like, yeah, this is the De Niro character, I guess, but just a different actor and a different character name because I didn't want to get sued. I'm really struck by just wondering <laughs> what <laughs> an Italian Vietnam movie would be. Because I, I mean, I haven't seen like, I mean, come to think of it, I've only ever seen like American movies about the vietnam war yeah because it feels like you know it's a very like it's an american kind of experience i mean and the vietnamese obviously yeah (laughs) (laughs) they had something to do with it too (laughs) but yeah i've never seen like a european take on on like the vietnam war there's a film um uh it's called deliria caldo and it's called delirium in english um and in the U.S. version of it, there's Vietnam scenes that they edited it in. Like, the Italian filmmakers f- shot Vietnam sequences to edit into it. For the American release. Yeah, to make it seem like the protagonist is a Vietnam vet mm. who um, suffered some sort of injury. Or it, it's um, They kind of just left that plot out. Yeah, and it's tied into like a tw- like a big twist ending that doesn't exist in the Italian version. It's it's uh, there's there's so many different versions of these films. Was it that he was smoking marijuana and the whole thing was a hallucination? I'm not telling. 
<laughs> more movies should end that way <laughs> or it's just like oh shit i've been smoking weed this whole time <laughs> like wait a minute did any of that stuff just happen <laughs> like luke skywalker finally comes to <laughs> and it's mark hamill just kind of like you know sitting on the couch and he's like oh shit <laughs> i wasn't fighting darth vader like actually mark hamill the actor just <laughs> and his roommates is like you've been running around the apartment for six years with like glow sticks <laughs> don't smoke weed kid <laughs> uh, yeah i don't really know where to go after that <laughs> don't smoke weed kids or you'll have a podcast in which you just <laughs> laugh uncontrollably for several minutes anyway <clears throat> but yeah i i mean the whole plot line of the uh of the pack of cigarettes is interesting because that's like the first thing that happens in the movie and then you forget about it yeah and well i actually remembered it about halfway through and i'm like oh i wonder how that's gonna tie in uh-huh. um but i like it because that it starts like very similarly to Hitchcock's the man who knew too much. The fifties one. The fifties one with Jimmy Stewart. Yep. Yeah, where he's instead of in a on a plane, they're in the back of a bus, and uh, he's talking with someone, um, and that person, you know, later kind of ties into uh, yeah the actual plot of the story. So I was thinking it was something kind of similar to that, where it's like this chance meeting while you're going to this place, and then like they cross paths later. And, uh, yeah, I really liked the whole bit of business in the airport when she tries to, like, drop the pack of cigarettes. And, uh, you know, of course, someone sees her do it and is like, oh, ma'am, you dropped your cigarettes. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's like, it, I mean, we know up front through the narration that, like, this woman, this woman, Nora, is, like, um, a fan of mystery novels. Yeah, she's reading a a Jallo. Right yeah, she, her last one, she promised her mother. So it, it's very fitting uh, in, intro to the whole genre of yeah. of Jallo films. I mean, we start with literally the character reading, and through the whole film, like I mean, there's the narration that's going, um, which brings to mind the narration that you would read in like in a, a mystery novel. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's almost like you know, there's this cigarettes thing and it's almost like she's kind of uh somehow subconsciously like trying to find a mystery or mystery is trying to find her or something like she's she's aware of that kind of stuff you know because she is into the uh into the into the genre and like is her mind is is sort of is sort of thinking that way when you said the um, the mystery trying to find her, it reminded me of um, in that opening scene on the plane. Um, there's like that. There's a shot. Um, I'm not sure if it's the first shot in the plane, but it, it starts to go like down the line of passengers, and it gets to her. And it's not a. It's there's a cut. Like you see, like all the passengers, and it it starts to move forward, and then there's a cut, and then it goes right to her close up, mm-hmm. and then it starts talking about her. Um, in the U.S. version, the Evil Eye, apparently, it was one continuous shot down the row of passengers, and as it passed each person, you would hear what they were thinking, 
And then it got to her. You hear, you heard what she was thinking, and it's almost as if the film decided, oh, her. We'll make the movie about her. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, Quentin Tarantino has said that's one of the greatest opening scenes in any movie he's ever seen, and it's not in the Italian version. And it's that's kind a, of disappointing. That's a shame because yeah. that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because, like, in the movie as it is, we only hear her thoughts at the end of the movie when she's like. Oh, these were marijuana cigarettes, and then she throws them away. Yeah, and in, in the version, I don't think we there's have, another. It's, it's the narration, the, right? There's the, a there's the a male, male there's a male narrator, yeah. but that's the only moment in the very end where we hear her thoughts. Um, so it makes way more sense yeah, that we. Yeah. That, and I don't that know why book that ends with the with the first scene. I have no idea why that version is not available to us as readily as this one. Um, there's also a bit of business with um, when she's. Uh, is first like meeting the the old woman she's staying with, um, and she's showing her around. Um, there's a, a picture on the wall of her uh, dead husband, and the person in the picture is Mario Bava, hmm. but we don't see that in this version. I guess at some point, you can see a picture that's like covered up with like a piece of cloth. And the reason is um, there was like a, a sequence where she's like, you know, changing to go to bed. She's wearing that great little negligee she's got in the movie, even though she's just sleeping alone in a house with an old woman. She's like, I'm going to wear my sexy laundry. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, <laughs> um, and I guess like during that scene, it was intercut with uh, shots of the, the picture, like his eyes were following her around the room. The evil eye. That could be it. Although it was just like a little like, oh, that dead guy's lascivious. He has. Maybe so, but, the evil uh, eye is the audience, oh. is the camera, you know, because we're like, we're, you know, it, it kind of makes sense. If we're starting on the plane and we're kind of listening into everybody's thoughts and we're kind of like seeing these, these mm. things, like we're the ones who are kind of like searching around looking for, you know. Looking for the the mystery. Looking for the... Seeking out the evil. Maybe it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to make sense. I mean, we're talking about the titles of Italian Jalo films. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll you probably uh, spend way too much time trying to figure out what half of those titles mean. Yeah, ne- next week when we're doing Bird with the Crystal Plumage, we'll talk about a lot of silly titles that ended up <laughs> being attached to uh, Jolly. But anyway, you were talking about the, the picture of Mario. Oh, eyes yeah. Following um, and it was it was like a take on the... Um, have you seen uh, Sullivan's Travels, the Preston Surges film? No. Uh, um, well, there's a scene where there's like this painting on the wall um, of this old woman's dead husband. And... Um, Joel McRae is uh, getting ready to go to bed and it keeps cutting to pictures of the uh, husband and he just keeps looking like disapproving at what's mm. going on. Uh, and in The Evil Eye, I guess there's a, you know, the dead husband played by Mario Baba is like looking at her like, yeah, she's taking off her clothes. And then she just like takes like a piece of cloth or something and covers it up. And she we sees don't, him watching. Yeah. And we don't uh, get that. It might be in the background. Um, but we don't get the shots of the eyes following her or anything like that. We just see it when it's already covered up. So we don't even really notice it. 
I mean, it, it's interesting because like the kind of like what what we were talking about with like the like she's almost like trying to find a mystery or the or the mystery's trying to find her. Yeah. There's a lot of things that happen to her that before we ever get to like the main sort of plot, which is her seeing this uh, this murder, right? Um, with the stabbing. You know, there's first this whole business with the uh, with the cigarettes, and this sort of like contraband thing. Then there's this um, this older woman who who dies, and there's the great moment where like right after she dies, she like she's kind of subtly rocking in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like the cat that's kind of like clawing on the on the bed. It's kind of making it like move just a little bit, which the audience can see, but I don't think she ever sees that it's the cat. Yeah. I think she just runs out in the night before. And it's sort of like when that started happening, you think for a second, like, you know, okay, what it, what it, maybe this, the story is somehow about like this, you know, this woman and this death and like there's something weird happening. Then she runs out into the night, ends up getting mugged, which you think like could be like, you know, <laughs> part of the story, but no, it's just a random mugger. Then she <laughs> comes out of her daze, sees this uh, this poor woman being stabbed in the back, and then she passes out again. Then she wakes up again as somebody else is, like, pouring alcohol into her mouth and whiskey. And what appeared to me at first, like, he kind of, like, groped her a little bit, mm. um, then ran away. So it's kind of like there's, like, a lot of different things that happen before you're, like... Rained. And then a cop grabs her. It's just the worst day ever. Yeah, it really is the worst day ever. Um, but it's kind of just like all these things where you're just like, you're not sure where the the story's going to land. You know what yeah. I mean? Like when all that is done, like, okay, what's the, you know, where are we going here? And I liked it that that way. Um, just like those random occurrences that kind of happen that have no connection to each other, but like somehow all added up to her being in that spot to see that murder. And it, 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 in that way, like it feels, even though it's like, you know, like what are the chances that all this stuff happens? Like that kind of shit happens in real life. Like those are the moments that like when you, I don't know, you just have weird days where you're just like all this shit just kind of just happened all at once. Mm. And even like the you know the cat pulling on the bed, and we see like her kind of subtly rocking. It's the kind of thing that like will happen in life, where you don't understand why something is happening, or it's just like it's not enough that like she just died in front of her, but like she's <laughs> got this weird rocking motion to her, and you don't know why. And it's like I don't know. That's the kind of thing that happens in real life. Yeah, I had several instances similar to that, and then, like, years later, I'll just be doing something, and I'll randomly be like, oh, that thing that happened, I bet it was just, and then just some, like, ridiculous explanation, like, oh, yeah, that's probably what that was. I don't know. I get that would, I guess if I had an actual, like, example, that would Yeah, and it's like, I I don't have, like, a, a personal example to talk about, but it's just like, I don't know, I feel like I've had those moments where... It's like it's not enough that this one thing is happening, but there's this other other like kind of weird element to it mm-hmm. that's like that makes it surreal. And it's like those it like um in the end of the movie when she opens up the study door and we finally find the husband and he's stabbed 
but like we're seeing like under the door crack like the light moving back and forth and yeah. it seems like someone's like in a rocking chair or something kind of like rocking back and forth like in front of a lamp and that's like kind of how we're seeing that but actually it's like the lamps on the ground like kind of rolling and we're hearing the the noise and it just creates this surreal moment that's perfectly explainable but it just it's not enough that she's opening up a door to find like you know this guy stabbed in the back it's like everything in that moment is is strange and bizarre and that's that stuff happens in real life i don't know if you can hear the rain we have a pipe matters yeah there's a pipe in our studio in our office here you might be hearing it on a subliminal level if you feel the need to pee every five minutes it might just be that (laughs) yeah because it's pouring all kinds of slush outside it's nasty but anyway i believe this was baba's last black and white film really yeah and um i think he did great work with color later on but his use of black and white with just the shadows and everything like in this and you've seen black sunday Mm -hmm. it's amazing just the atmosphere oh yeah definitely i mean that's i mean that's definitely one thing that he's really good at is creating that really spooky atmosphere um yeah and the, the the lighting in in this movie was uh was great and again it just reminded me of hitchcock so many times um there's a shot early on in the in that scene with uh with the with the old woman who dies mm. as she's like trying to get the um the medicine into the into the cup right the way that the cup is lit up reminded me of um in milk and suspicion the milk and suspicion yeah. exactly yeah um yeah i don't know just like a lot of little things like that just uh you, you can clearly see the the influence and there's very um i love the scene on the beach oh yeah yeah. which it's a very jarring cut to like it's her and john saxon they're going around for oh we got this clue from this guy now we got to go over here and find this clue now we got to keep that was a whole that's a whole great sequence and then all of a sudden it just cuts to her on the beach and it's like what is it's like a very because it goes to all these like shadowy things to this like this very like bright light on the like the sun and everything it's very stark yeah and then you almost and we're begin just to slowly think, panning like, across her body, and you're like, "All right." And then it starts getting <laughs> creepy because John Saxon is like, "You think he's going to confess to being the murderer or something?" And you're like, "Wait, this has to be a dream." And then you realize it's just. I thought it was it, like a like a kind of like just a sick joke almost like yeah, but not so much like he's playing a joke on her. Like he just is sort of like gonna confess i i, I kind of knew that he was gonna be like you know because he's like oh you haven't figured it out yet and i thought it was gonna be like he's gonna confess that he loves her but the way that he's sort of like stalkerly walking over to her i'm like is he gonna like rape her right now or something like Which, hey rome up. <laughs> but yeah then like he kisses her and then we jump cut to them kissing them in, kissing front, of in front of the door, door like that yeah without any kind of explanation as to if they actually were at the beach. Yeah, it's like that whole beach scene just got, like, stuck in between these two 
relatively normal scenes, like visually and you know content-wise, and it's it's like, yeah, I don't know. That's odd. Why would they go to the beach in the middle of that anyway? And I think I kind of thought that maybe it's sort of like it's they were standing at the door. Yeah, and she, like he was looking at her, like he wants to kiss her, and in her mind. It's a beautiful moment, which is kind of like represented by this this beach. This kind of very romantic setting. Because she does like him. Yeah. And she wants to kiss him. But yeah, she is, you know, has that, that mystery detective mind. And she, like, doesn't want to just uh, let him off the hook. Because she, she kind of th- thinks, like, maybe he is a suspect, you know. Um. And we, the audience, kind of think that, like, maybe he has something to do with it, too. Because in these kinds of movies, like, everyone's a suspect, you know? Yeah. So when she sees him looking at her, she isn't sure that it, you know, if it's because he wants to kiss her or kill her. And it's the that beach scene kind of just, uh, I don't know, somehow visualizes that internal kind of struggle. But yeah, very strange way to represent that. But it's the kind of thing like I don't I I didn't not like it. Right. But Yeah, I mean and that's the kind of thing that like I feel like you try to put that into like a studio picture. Even in this in like the early sixties, I feel like they wouldn't really go for it in america yeah and there's um another weird shot baba loves weird shots um there's the overhead shot where it looks like you're seeing like the petals of a flower opening up and, and it turns the, out it's the, the nuns. nuns yeah it's yeah just the, the nuns heads, that, like, yeah that was really cool yeah that whole that whole sequence when she's in the bed and like we're cutting from her close up in the bed and it's all kind of echoey and like we keep cutting back to her POV of different yeah, sets various of people, people and they're, who are like, know you know, much time has passed. questioning her and like that was really, really great mm-hmm. too. And the scene when she goes to that apartment where the, um, the reel to reel is mm-hmm. playing and there's just those bare light bulbs. Yeah. Just swinging. Yeah. And just, I don't know, there's just a lot of great imagery in this movie. Definitely. And it all just adds, it's, you know, it's all those, like, ra- just random occurrences that happen in day-to-day life that kind of just add up to, you know, a, a, a mystery. There's mystery all around us in everyday life. <laughs> Whether or not it's there or you've just been smoking too much weed, <laughs> that's <laughs> up to you to find out. I like that, um... In this film, Nora wears a uh, a black raincoat and black gloves, which, starting from Baba's next stab at the Jalo, uh, <laughs> blood and oh. blood and black lace. Um, the killer is like a masked figure with like a black coat and black gloves and black gloves, especially in the films of Argento, mm-hmm. like that becomes like, Oh, that's when you know it's a Jalo. There's the killer has black gloves and you just right. see the gloves. Um, but you won't see anything else. And, 
Yeah, and it's just it's interesting that in like this first example, it's like the heroine is just like putting. So like looking back on it, it's like almost like oh my god, maybe she did it, even though obviously she didn't. But I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. According to films like Reefer Madness, you never know what someone's gonna do when they're smoking the marijuana. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I was going to say that in, in the other Mario Bava films that I've seen, it seems like he likes the uh, the the dark-haired, sort of mysterious female antagonists that kind of are mm. are present. Um, like the Laura character reminded me of um, the sort of witch woman in Kill Baby Kill. Right. It's kind of like, you know, beautiful, dark, mysterious person who kind of knows more about what's going on but like and you're not sure if she's you know good or bad and you're not really you know you don't really know and then obviously in like black sunday there's the uh there's the the witch who yeah. they they all have a kind of similar and in both of those films look it's to them when girl who knew too much and black sunday um I mean, the Barbara Steele character in Black Sunday, well, I mean, it's two characters. There's, like, the good one and the evil one, and it's, like, that sort of split. And then in The Girl Who Knew Too Much, um, the killer is, I mean, she's crazy. You yeah. feel bad for her. Yeah, because in the so, end, I mean, you realize that she is, like, really mentally yeah. ill. And when you first meet her, I mean, she's good. She's like, oh, you could stay at my place. Like, this random well, person you know being that so nice. bad and news. Yeah, like... <laughs> But, I mean, she's she's got good and bad in her. It's a shame that the bad part of her kills people. But, well, you're yeah. talking about, like, the duality, like, there's a good one and a bad one, and there's this whole thing with her sister, this whole backstory that we don't ever really find out about. Right. But, like, you could kind of surmise that, like, her sister was probably, like, you know, you need to get help because <laughs> you're crazy, <laughs> and you need to, like, you know... And she infers it as, like, oh, you're trying to take my money. <laughs> You've always tried to hold me down. <laughs> You know, because she's nuts. I also like how they played on the whole notion of, like, whether or not this was... Like, at first, they bring, like the police are like, you know, are you sure you just weren't drunk? Or, you know, you just were hit on the head and you were just imagining this thing? But then there's, like, the, the doctor who's like, oh, no, that was a psychic vision, what you saw. That was a... <laughs> you saw a vision of the past, clearly. Ectoplasm. <laughs> and just so matter-of-factly, he was just like, oh, no. Yeah, that's what that was. I like how, you know, they, you don't really know for sure. For a good chunk of the movie, like, whether or not it actually did happen. And there's so many horror films. Like, well, there's films of any genre, but, like, a lot of horror films, especially that have, like, the female protagonist who is just is just seen by people around her, not even just the males around her, as being hysterical, mm-hmm. um, and just overreacting to anything. Like um, in the early '80s, there was a film called *The Entity*, uh, which like really like brought to focus how like you know they just paired that with like how so many people view people uh, like rape victims. And like, oh well, you know, it wasn't really rape, or you're just you're just you know saying rape. It wasn't you know whatever yeah. it didn't really happen. Because in that film, a woman is raped repeatedly by a ghost. Like that's what that film is about, and like nobody believes her because mm. I mean, it's a ghost. Yeah, <laughs> and um, that's a really intense and difficult film to watch. Um, yeah, that sounds pretty rough. 
but it pretty much just like summed up decades of female hysteria and horror films before that, or at least the male reactions to it. Yeah, because I mean, in modern day sort of common everyday life, like that is the you know the immediate sort of example that you can relate to as being like you know when women are put into that kind of doubt it's usually tied to a rape here we are talking about rape again <laughs> wouldn't be talking movies if we weren't <laughs> talking rape uh, um cut that out <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put that on the on the cover photo is this our tagline good lord it wouldn't be talking movies if we weren't talking rape Anyway, um, so yeah, I just mentioned the horror genre, and the, the Jalo is normally like related to that, but I mean, it is, um, first and foremost, a mystery. Mm-hmm. And in later films, it's not always like a mystery for the audience. There are films like uh, Delirium and Baba's own Hatchet for the Honeymoon, where the main character is the murderer. You know that he's the murderer from the beginning. Um, in Hatcher for the Honeymoon, there's so much like there's so much first person narration in that. He's just like, oh, and now I'm gonna kill this person. Like, it's very amusing actually. <laughs> um, but even in those films, there's like some other side character who's trying to figure out who the killer is or stop them. Um, but like in this film, you know, as you know, pretty much the first of the subgenre, um, it has the horror elements. Mm-hmm. You know, it's creepy as hell in parts yeah, and definitely. there's like stabbing and shooting and stuff and, like the, um, the scene when she's um in bed at night after she sets the trap yeah and she hears somebody outside and there's just that figure like trying to look in the window right that was just really really creepy um i, I just love the that room and like the that like the big wall of kind of like uh clouded glass mm. And I like how the you know John Saxon ends up setting off the trap and just falling in the powder and having everything crash around him. And yeah, the, the booby trap. Now, how itself, weird is that? Yeah, it reminded me of like in Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. the later John Saxon film, which where, was directed by Wes Craven, who had booby traps in almost all of his movies. Yeah, that was that's like from his the, thing like from the beginning. Yeah, and then one of the char- like the the C murder victim in the Alphabet Murders was named Craven. That was just weird that's the connection that i made i was like yeah. craven obviously like that just instantly reminded me of west craven and then she starts setting this trap and i'm like that's weird because that that is totally like the west craven thing mm. and then of course it's john saxon who's in nightmare on Elm street <laughs> who sets it off very strange thing coincidence I, and i wonder if Wes craven ever thought about that when working with john saxon on nightmare on elm street or if john saxon Thought about like oh this movie's got booby traps in it that reminds me of a time like twenty years ago I was in Italy and <laughs> it's really funny <laughs> like how, like how infatuated Wes Craven is with like the <laughs> the booby trap yeah it <laughs> the, the sort of homemade booby trap <laughs> which I mean it comes to really like it's culmination in the people under the stairs where like it takes place in a house that's pretty much one big booby trap. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> he he probably was like first in line to see Home Alone. 
<laughs> and it's just like, this is the movie I've been waiting for my whole life. <laughs> After the opening scene of Raiders, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with like the boulder and everything mm-hmm. like that. As soon as that's over, he like gets up and he's like, well, that's all I needed to see. <laughs> yeah. like, where? His friend's like, where are you going? He's like... Well, good part's over. <laughs> if you can I'm guarantee out. there's another booby trap in this movie, I'll stay. But, um, but anyway, as I was saying about the horror genre and the mystery genre, this is um, a pretty decent mystery. It's got there's clues, mm-hmm. and it's not just like later on. You know, uh, later Jolly won't necessarily you know give us like clues, and we can solve the mystery or anything. It's pretty much just like it's this random person. Or they're either like a homicidal maniac, or it's someone with a vendetta or something like that. But you know, we don't nece- you can't necessarily guess. Mm-hmm. Um, did Did you have any idea who it was? Well, I mean, the one thing that I thought was interesting is like they they set up the the whole idea that I mean, they were constantly referencing the murder novels or the mystery novels, I should say. Right. And with the narration, it was really like feeling like you know, trying to sort of replicate a mystery novel into a movie Hmm. um but the one thing that usually in in mystery novels what they don't do is like the character your detective character and the reader usually have or have access to the same information and are like you know that we both know the same things so that you can try to figure out um with the character um, but we're kind of given a little bit more is that picture. as the audience member. Yeah, where there's like the photo in the house of the husband um, that we know is the killer because we or we know he's the person who is pulling the knife out yeah. of the out of the the back of the girl. Or just by chance, Nora didn't notice that photo before Laura removed it from the frame. Right. So like because we know that, it's like all right. Well, obviously we are suspicious of this guy. You know, and obviously we're suspicious of Laura because, you know, his picture is in her house. And then we find out that, you know, it was her sister that was killed. So, I mean, I mean, I knew all along that it was, you know, basically, you know, Laura and her husband that were doing the killings. (laughs) Um, it was surprising when she opened up the door and, you know, the husband's there and then he falls over with the knife in his back. Yeah. And then just seeing how crazy Laura actually was. Um, it was, I like how they kind of elevated the expectation. Like, it's like, okay, well, we know that it's like, there's something to do with these guys. That they, that they are clearly, you know, the ones who are doing it. But when we actually see, you know, are revealed, it's like, whoa, <laughs> you guys aren't just like, you know, casually killing. I mean, you, you know, she's just fucking crazy. Um, it's sad to uh, think that the, the woman who is actually murdered the, the, in the early like murder scene mm-hmm. that Nora witnesses is the, the daughter of the guy who was wrongly executed for yeah. the murders. And that she was blackmailing that she wasn't gonna like go to the police or anything apparently yeah she had figured it out somehow and decided to blackmail yeah like rather than which seems just like the wrong thing to do 
Yeah. <laughs> because it's and like, you, just... you know that she's, okay, you know that she's killed three innocent girls before. And now you want to make a secret deal and with them. And your father has died because of this. <laughs> yeah. And... It seems like the last but, thing you And you wonder what is... kind of life she had. Because, I mean, according to her former co-worker, mm-hmm. when they go to that place of those great statues. Um, yeah, where she, she's cleaning the yeah, statues. Um, you know, she apparently was moonlighting as a prostitute. Right. Or at least it's implied. But, I mean, I... You know, when I worked making catheters, a lot of the older women there would, you know, infer such things about some of my younger female coworkers. So that could have just been something like that. But I don't know. She could have just been talking about uh, waitressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I She's guess. like, if I was twenty and I was doing that line of work, I'd be making money if you catch my drift, day and night. Because <laughs> she knows the tips are good. <laughs> did we? Uh, did we learn what? Um, the private conversation was with the washerwoman. No, no, we don't know. Yeah, so that's he. Uh, we'll never know. He then. calls her and is like, you know, I, I think I've got it all figured out. Come talk to me, and I'll tell it all to you. Yeah. And then again, another really great scene when she discovers the room. The typewriter. The typewriter sounds. record. He's been banging away on that typewriter all day. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just another reel to reel. It's it's those elements that are like you know oh, we're seeing these reel to reels appear and like it's mm. it's really uh, I don't know there's a there's a lot of different elements that make up the 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 whole situation that's going on. Um, it seems to be consistent with a lot of these uh, these Jalo films, at least and I know like a lot of Argento films have that kind of thing going on. Where there are a lot of different elements that you're not sure how they all add up, but somehow they they do. This movie reminded me of uh, Deep Red, kind of. Mm. Not sure exactly what about it, but... Well, I think as you see a lot more jolly... Mm-hmm. They'll all remind you of this movie to a degree. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, because this is the, uh, the 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 genesis, the starting point, I guess. So. I mean, if you want to get like really technical about it, the first one would be Ossessione in the early '40s, because it was based on the Postman Always Rings Twice, which was it's so it's an Italian film based on a mystery mm-hmm. novel, um, well, a crime novel, but. Um, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we don't. We shouldn't consider it. Yeah, no. It's. I mean, people. You could say it's the first Shallow film. You, some people say it's the first neo-realist film. But I mean, it's really technically, it's neither one of those things. What do? You, oh, I'm sorry. Were you about to? I was about to wrap things up. Oh, because we've well, been never going mind. For about then. an hour. Um, I was gonna. I was just wondering if there was anything about the film that you didn't like, like that you thought was, because uh, we've been saying all very positive things about this movie, and I'm wondering if there's anything that just bugged the crap out of you. Not really. I mean, like I, I've, I've, I've had nothing but good feelings while watching the movie. Um, each scene was as interesting or more interesting than the last. I thought. Mm. Um, 
and there was a lot it, it, even though i kind of knew like who the killers were it was still like i don't know there was enough driving the story and the mystery that kept me very involved uh, i particularly like little touches like um you know when they find that first reel to reel and they try to like play it back Oh yeah, <laughs> and there's like the moment of shock when it's like a really, really loud, like kind of sped up, like song. And I think it's the song that plays at the beginning of the movie. The theme that goes throughout the yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that music. Um, that I, yeah, I just loved everything about it. I thought it was great. Great. Give it a five star rating on Netflix. Nice. So. Yeah, I think that's a really great start to the month. Um, before we talk about, well, well, actually, no, what do we, what do we got next week? We've got the film that, uh, sort of there, there were several Jalo films that came after this in the sixties. Um, and, uh, they were all very different from each other in various ways. And then there was this one film in 1970 that sort of like brought all the elements together and, um, was a huge hit and led to a ton of, uh, imitators. Uh, some of which are better than it. Uh, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage, the first film that Dario Argento directed. And um, I've seen a lot of uh, Argento films, but uh, this is one that I have not yet seen. So I'm excited to finally get around to seeing it. Um, I know that that's got an excellent score by Ennio Marconi. Yep. Because um, I have the soundtrack, and uh, it's really, really great. Um. Morricone did a lot of Jalo soundtracks. Yeah. But it was like how I said about Mario Bava being a genre director. That's whatever the Italian uh, film industry was making, that's what he did the scores for. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, there are some filmmakers who like focused, like Sergio Leone was a Western director. Right. He had like that one film at the beginning, one film at the end that weren't necessarily Westerns, but like he focused. And Argento. And his first film was you know barely his film really the, the colossus of Rhodes. yeah so, yeah and argento for the most part is the giallo director mm-hmm. he's like the majority of his films <clears throat> you could like argue like yes that falls under the category of giallo um but yeah we'll get to that next week but. um speaking of music in his uh in argento's films that's coming up Mostly identified with a, uh, a an Italian prog rock band called Goblin. Now I I'm Tim and I are both big fans of of Goblin's music. It's true. Um, you know the scores to things like you know Suspiria. It's classic. Mm-hmm. Um, but really the scores to all of his films um, that Goblin has done the score are just all really really great and they're apparently a really great band to see live um they really uh rock really hard and you know <laughs> as, as those young kids are saying they really <laughs> rock hard <laughs> but anyway they're they're on their uh, their first ever u.s tour and they announced the dates and lo and behold they uh had a uh, show lined up in Clifton Park, which is uh, just a few minutes away from us at the Upstate Concert Music Hall. Formerly Northern Lights. Northern Lights, yes. 
And that show scheduled for the uh, for December 8th. But today there was some disappointing news. The show's been canceled. That's not true. Max is being a dick. I unfortunately am not being a dick. The Wait, show what? The Seriously? show has been canceled, yes. Oh. <sighs> and I'm really disappointed <laughs> and sad. Are you seriously being serious? I am totally 100% serious right now. I can uh, what do, show how you. How do the, we? Um, I mean, we can get our money back. I looked on the website and they said okay, that. Okay, cool. You know, I could use money. <laughs> but I'm really. I was really bummed because I was looking forward to that for a this, long time. This uh, is the second time that I have purchased a ticket to see Goblin and not gotten to see them. When was the first time? In uh, the year 2000. ColtCon 2000, Terrytown, New York. Uh, Claudia Simonetti was going to be there, and he was going to have a Goblin reunion, and they were going to play. Uh, my friend Gavin and I, we show up. Uh, a lot of other people are there. We got to meet some awesome people. Gunnar Hansen, David Hess. Um, Claudia Simonetti was there with his new band, Demonia. Goblin had just broken up. <laughs> and they were still, it was so recent that they were selling Goblin t-shirts. Oh, announced man. like, Goblin, 20 years later. Which I bought one, actually, I still own it. And, um, and you know, uh, he signed a CD for me and stuff, and like it was cool, but like we didn't get to see Goblin. Demonia played. Well, you're not seeing them again. Yeah. Yeah. It fucking sucks, dude. It does suck. I was really suck. looking forward to it. John, our friend John saw them in the city, and he was like, it's the best show I've ever seen, ever been to. Because they were just what, so uh, awesome. Why did they... Um, according the... to the Upstate Concert Music Hall, whatever the fuck they're called, um, <laughs> their website, they said that no reason was given. But I was talking with Justin, um, and I'm surprised Justin didn't message you and tell you that it was it was canceled. He might. I mean, I don't have a working phone at the moment. He might. Oh, have, okay. uh, although neither does he. So He's, I don't know. He don't sent know. me a message and <laughs> said like, "Hey, do you hear that the concert was canceled?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Um, he was like, "Do you?" Do you think that they were just looking at their tour dates and were wondering why they were playing in Clifton Park? And we're just like, wait a minute, what's this place? Like, why are we going there? Like, yeah, fuck that place. Was it not selling? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because, like, you and I, I remember we bought our tickets the first... You I, bought it the first day, right? I bought it the minute they went on sale. And I was kicking myself because I forgot that day, and then I ended up buying it the next day, and I was lucky that there was still a ticket. Maybe... There were a handful of people like us thinking, oh my God, we got to do it early because it's going to sell out. And, and then, then like 20 people ever, bought tickets yeah, and no yeah. one else. Because I, w- I was wondering like how many people are in this area like. I haven't heard it advertised. Dying I, to see Goblin. Every so often, you know, like I'll listen to EQX and they'll have a thing in the commercials like, oh, coming soon to Upstate Concert Hall. Is Whatever. That, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Northern Lights. Um. And they'll list all these bands that I don't care about. And I kept waiting for them to say Goblin, and they never did. And they would say some from December. So I'm like, oh, maybe... Mm-hmm. I don't know, but... So maybe it's kind of been in flux for a while, and they've kind of like, well, we're not exactly sure. We're going to wait before we advertise. I don't know. Whatever the fuck happened. I'm fucking pissed. It just sucks, because we're the ones who are losing out. We, you know, we, we already bought tickets. We were ready to go. And this was like... This was over a month ago that the tickets went on sale. It was I think in, it, it was, was the not, end of September. It, yeah, something. it was the first week of October. Okay. Because um, I was at the world, the, the Village Wide Garage Sale in Warrensburg. 
when when the tickets went on sale. <sighs> yeah, so that was a real bummer. I thought that you already knew, so I was no. kind of like... <laughs> I seriously just thought you were, like, fucking with me. <laughs> I wish I was. I seriously do, because that that's the kind of thing that's, like... If I had known that this show wasn't going to pan, pan out, then, like, maybe we could have done, like, a you know, one down in the city or something. Because there were a few shows down in the city. Are all the dates canceled? Or was this going to be the end of the tour or something? Or I don't know. According to, uh, to Justin, he couldn't tell if other dates had been canceled or or what. But I think this was the last show in the state. And they were moving on elsewhere after afterwards. It's a weird place to end in the state. Well, unless they were going like to Vermont or something. Like, Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe up to Canada. I know that they did all their city shows first and then they came up. Yeah. And then they were going to come up north and hit up here. I mean, I was shocked to begin with that they were going to be so close. Yeah. Should have known it was too good to be true. It seemed like a dream. I was like, wow, we're actually going to see them? Because that's the kind of band that, like, I would never think that I would ever have the chance to see, you know? Because they hardly ever play. Well, because like, they've, they've been broken up and, like, you know. Yeah, there's been a lot of, like, uh, heart feelings between different members over the decades. And so the fact that they were not only got back together and were playing shows, but they were actually doing their first U.S. tour yeah. and going to be, like, 15 minutes away. It was like, yeah, it's too good to be true. Now, um, this time when they got back together, is it just a tour, or did they do a soundtrack for anything? Because I remember the last time, I when know. I was supposed to see them in 2000, they had reunited to do the soundtrack for uh, Sleepless, or uh, I Can't Sleep, or Nono Sono, or whatever the... The Argento film from, like, 2000. Um, I don't know if, like, something like that had spurred this on. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But, yeah, that was a bummer. Yeah. So, on that note... Wah, wah. <laughs> well, at least we don't have to, I mean... We're not watching a Goblin-scored movie. Yeah, at least we don't have to, like, watch, you know, sit there and listen to the music and be like, we should fucking see live play this song god damn it yeah well we'll be listening to the sweet sounds of Ennio Marconi and Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies I'm Max I'm Tim and we'll see you next time Sofrir,